0: It's the network break. Carbo-load with a virtual donut as we streak through this week's networking and IT news with analysis and commentary. We've got stories today on Marvell, Juniper, Arista, and more. We're sponsored today by Unimus, a network automation and configuration management solution. It's fast to deploy. It's easy to use. It's designed specifically to make it easier for you to adopt network automation. Unimus takes under 15 minutes to deploy. You can get more details at unimus.net slash pushers. And after the news, we talk with a pharmaceutical distribution company about their rollout of Aruba's EdgeConnect SD-WAN to boost up time for fulfillment services, improve delivery, and create a full mesh SD WAN to make it easier for warehouses and offices to share data.
1: It ah, was a good story actually, because the full mesh part was the surprise, not the not all SD WAN solutions do full mesh.
0: Right. <laughs> yes. Yep, that was good. Yeah, so that's coming up at the end of the show. But first, we got news. Uh, first chip maker, Marvell, they're acquiring ASIC maker Enovium for $1.1 billion in an all stock transaction. Innovium makes the TerraLink ASICs. Uh, they range from 2 to 25.6 terabytes of throughput, and they're competing with Broadcom and Intel's Barefoot in the Ethernet switching market.
1: This is probably the only big piece of news for this week. Everything else is kind of. Eh? But uh, this is really interesting. <laughs> in the,
0: a way to kill it for the rest of the it show. It is a little bit. Well, you know, it's all interesting,
1: <laughs> but it's not so much news as such. It's more analysis and, and consideration of what's happening and Commentary. And yes. commentary, and
0: yes, this is throwing very out busy. ideas
1: for you to consider. And, and, and you know, of course, as always, the links are in the show notes. You can come onto the website and then go and look at our sources and see if you agree or not. Um, but I think this is the really, really big news. And Ovium's kind of been a company that was started by a bunch of ex-Broadcom engineers. They set out to make a data center class switch, the ASIC that was uh, better than the Broadcom in some sort of, you know, the sort of the, what Arista is to Cisco and Ovium was sort of trying to be to Broadcom. Broadcom's ASICs are always kind of hamstrung and they kind of stuck to some sort of legacy and, and Ovium was saying, no, 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 we think we can do this better and bigger and faster. And they've got a, a roadmap that goes right the way up to uh, 120 terabytes terabits per second of throughput. And so far they've released the 25.6 terabit per second, but in the next generation. And this is definitely comparable to Broadcom and it competes with all the other ASICs that are out there. They're really the major one. The Intel Tofino is still a little bit behind, but it's a programmable silicon. So it's a little bit slower and it's much more complex and Intel's taking time to digest that. And I think one of the interesting things here, Drew, is only 1.1 billion. It was... What eighteen months ago that they took a second round or a round of funding, which valued them at one point one billion, and now a year later, still only one point <laughs> one billion. One
0: point one billion, yes. So yeah, I mean the the ASIC market is hard to get into. There's a lot of startup costs. Broadcom is obviously the giant there, uh, and Innovium. I think you know it's going after a limited market in that it was sort of focused on hyperscalers and cloud providers uh, as opposed to the enterprise data center because it's hard to sell a program. And I should note that Inovium also touts being programmable like uh, the barefoot Tofino. Um, that's a hard market to break into. It's limited. So I guess I can see why that's where the the pricing of the product stayed flat.
1: Yeah, this is, this is probably, to me, this is one of these things where big companies want to do business with big companies. So if you're AWS, Google Cloud, Facebook, you know, the the primary tier cloud off-premise cloud companies you want to do business with a big company you want to do a business with a Marvel or a Broadcom or an Nvidia right and mm-hmm. that's why companies mm-hmm. like Malinox, which is in the similar sort of situation they're subscale they're not big enough to bully around the cloud companies the cloud they were getting bullied around by the big cloud companies they had to do what they do with what they were told and sell for the price that they were told to sell for and and you know you better like it pucker up sort of thing. And I think this puts an ovium in a much better place. And that's uh, fundamentally why the price might've gone cheap. And the second part here, of course, is with lack of scale, they also lack access to silicon manufacturing for the next two to three years. And getting in on Marvell, who's a much bigger manufacturer, who's able to leverage its scale with the silicon uh, manufacturers, may be able to get capacity to keep the chipset uh, flowing at this point in time.
0: Yeah, I feel like Marvell is a good home for Inovium. Uh It can go after, uh, you know, Barefoot, which was uh, essentially its biggest competitor, particularly for programmable Ethernet ASICs, uh, which landed at Intel. Um, I, Mar- I think Marvell will be able to execute faster mm-hmm. on its strategy to uh, promote Enovium to the cloud market. Uh, so I think it's a nice fit for them. Obviously, a great landing spot for Enovium because, as you mentioned, they can tie into mm-hmm. Marvell's relationships with Silicon suppliers.
1: Yeah, so we know that 40% of Ethernet ports are sold, of data center Ethernet ports are sold to Cloud companies, you know these off-prem clouds. Um, they're doing a lot of building out still. They still have you know good demand, and they need to build infrastructure so that customers can come onto their platforms. So they're buying a lot of switch ports. And the Marvel product range has a gap in that they have the Marvel Prestera, that's P-R-E-S-T-E-R-A um, chipsets, but they're campus or mid-range at best, if you want to say that. So they have the things like the 98DX85XX. That's the XX at the end there is the model number. It has an IO bandwidth of 1.8 terabits, and they have a range going down. The 83X is a 720 gig and goes down. So they're all sort of campus switches, fairly simple designed to do a limited set of functions and you'll see them quite widely used in OEM switches, other people's switches. They're the core uh, silicon used by quite a lot of people in those switches. But Uh they used to have a thing called Expliant, which was the data center switch and Marvell wasn't able to get that in and they seeded the market and ditched the Expliant, folded that up and just kept the Prestera ASIC running. So this puts them back. And again, an OVM is In my view, broadly superior to the Broadcom ASIC in terms of speeds and feeds and density and channels and IOs and roadmap. But can, you know, we also know that the Broadcom APIs are proprietary, they're licensed, and it makes it very difficult for vendors once they're using those APIs. They often have contractual limitations on whether they can transition from one supplier to another. So, you know, for the for the mid-range networking vendors to switch out from Broadcom's ASICs to others, not only is it a technology problem, it's also a business problem and a legal contractual one because they often have uh-huh. commitments from, you know, they sign agreements to only use Broadcom in the same way that Intel did the same thing with its CPU to vendors. It's quite a common practice, uh, you know, when they've got you by the short and curlies, they lock you in. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if Marvell can use its positioning and its history and its money to get that in. So you know, be interesting. I think it's interesting that Marvell may also be realizing that campus is not what it was. The the idea that there would be an intelligent campus market going forward. There's an intelligent campus now. There are customers out there who have this, you know, we need to solve the security problem in the campus and we're gonna build an intelligent network in the campus. But in the future it's I believe that it's going to be a software-defined perimeter where the network actually moves into the device, so into your iPhone, into your laptop, and there's an agent there that's doing networking, and that networking may be SD-WAN-like. It's also zero-trust. Encryption's done in that agent. It's managed centrally, whether from the cloud or an uh, on-prem software-defined type tool, and this idea of a smart campus is fading away, but the data center probably still has, has legs. So I think there's lots of things happening here.
0: Yeah, for sure. I feel like this is Marvell looking to Enovium to get them into the cloud and hyperscale markets. And Inovium can do that with its throughput. And again, that programmable pipeline, if you're interested in that. Inovium also already has agreements with lots of ODMs and white box mm. manufacturers that the cloud providers are going to be working with. So that helps. Um, I, I suppose you know that could also then leverage, Marvell could try to leverage this for high-end enterprise data centers. I don't see that happening so much. It seems more like the cloud hyperscale play to me.
1: Yeah, I think so. But also 5G. Don't forget that there is 5G edge networks and Marvell's kind of capped at about 40 gig, stretching to 100 gig. And we're really talking about 400, 800, and 1.2 terabit. And their current Prestera ASICs, they would be locked out of that market if they're not, and also the optical edge uh, if they don't have a high throughput switch. And they promote on their website the fact that they can, you know, they, they can't really participate in the backhaul core or the backhaul aggregation because there's just not enough density there going forward. So it'll be interesting to see. So there's lots of places where they can spread this around and also, you know, turn it into an entire product line. And if they can unify the APIs and come up and get access to manufacturing capacity, I think it'll be good for Novium and good for Marvell. Um, you know, Innovium has been a shining light and building a billion dollar company in just, uh, you know, 10 years or so is not an insignificant task, especially when it comes to designing and getting an ASIC into the market of that sort of capacity and quality.
0: It's also always nice to have more competition, particularly with Broadcom dominating the market like it does. Mm. Uh, so now between Marvell and Intel with Barefoot, there's... Yep other opportunities for folks to explore
1: and nvidia with the melanox acquisition and the switch with right the that's right up there as well. right. i think that's the four that we're looking at at the moment
0: yes All right, links in the show notes. If you want to read more, we'll move on. Juniper has announced new security software. It's called Cloud Workload Protection. Basically, it's an agent designed to run right on server hosts, whether in a VM, a Docker container, and Kubernetes. And essentially, the agent software monitors application processes, maps out the functions, and if it detects invalid or unexpected functions, it can kill them. Uh, The idea is to uh, block exploits uh, against vulnerable code without having to use signatures.
1: Speaking of the networking moving into the edge, into the app, (laughs) into the operating system, (laughs) here we are. Yeah. So this is not something I would normally expect Juniper to do, to put an app into the Kubernetes container and uh, so that it can now – reach inside the container to control the network at the edge of the network. Is that fundamentally how it works? You, you were briefed on this, so I'll lean into what your your viewpoint is. No, it has
0: nothing to do with networking. This is entirely a security play. This is host-based uh, application-level security. It's watching application functions and saying that function call is looks like it's leading to potentially a buffer overflow, so I'm killing the process and sending you an alert.
1: Okay. So it's literally an inline firewall of a specific type, is that, is that? as I understand it. Yeah, it's
0: essentially, yeah, it's not quite a firewall because it's not, again, working at the network layer. This is actually, there's a little portion of this agent that's running in memory watching the application call functions.
1: Right, okay. Yeah, so So it's actually a genuine operating system firewall in a way. You're actually watching the memory calls as the container interacts with the underlying OS.
0: I think that's the model I'm using. I'm thinking of it like the old host intrusion prevention systems that were the thing, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but they're tightening it up and they're not using signatures this time around.
1: Okay, so much more of a, we know what sort of calls should not be made, so let's do those.
0: Yeah, so essentially, you know, the agent starts off in kind of a learning mode where it watches what the application's doing and they call it, you know, building a map or a DNA of the application. And so this agent is supposed to have an idea of this is good, this is bad, so I can, at that function call level, say... This shouldn't be happening. I'm going to either alert you or just block it outright. So static
1: analysis. It's sitting there. There's a static analysis done back in... Probably, they'll probably strap some, AI, some uh, missed AI onto it in the future. Marvel, Marvel will be here to, uh, yes, to dynamically I detect assume. attacks at, at some point in the future. But this sounds to me like a little bit like we know that these things should not be happening. Therefore, let's exclude them. So that's the static firewalling. But this is actually hardening the OS from the container then.
0: Again, running at the application level, not necessarily the OS or the network level, yes. Okay. I like it. yeah it's it's uh, it's an interesting idea um you know host based security has its issues uh false positives can be a problem if it blocks legitimate transactions uh, especially if you're running it on you know production revenue generating applications that's a big problem there's also the issue of uh, host resource consumption how much memory and CPU do I need to dedicate to the security app uh, juniper when I talked to them said they can promise uh one that it will generate only one one tenth of one percent of false positives because of a technique they're. Using called optimized control flow integrity. I'm not really sure what that is, but they say uh, they are very confident that this will not be throwing lots of false positives or uh, unnecessary alerts. Okay, I can see that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, but this is this is not new in the sense that we've seen this announced. We haven't talked about it in the network break or on the packet pushes, but this this idea of uh, loading an agent into the service mesh and looking for an, and having it do the firewalling as part of a security portfolio that's been around for a while. But coming from a networking vendor, that's the, that's the angle I think is fresh here.
0: Yeah, that's what's strange. It seems like kind of out of the blue for Juniper to be playing with application level security. That's not really their bailiwick, and I'm curious where this project came out of. I assume because of all the you know research they're doing into advanced uh, threats that they decided, hey, we're getting a sense of you know how uh, code gets exploited, how vulnerabilities get exploited. Maybe we can do something about it.
1: Yeah, that'll be interesting to see if they can make that stick, if they can land that. I mean, they have a checkered history. They did try to do security a few years ago. I hope that the executives that are in charge of it are not the ones who tried and failed fairly miserably the the first time around. Um, No reason to believe that they are, but, you know, I think Juniper's losing its focus on forwarding packets for a living and realising that networking is in software at the edge And there's a place for high speed. I'm sort of coming to the view that this is fundamentally a zero trust thing. And the part about zero trust networking is that you literally are saying, do not trust the network, zero trust of the network, right? And so everything has to happen outside of the network. Now, there's two things about that. One is you have everything moving into the edge. The edge device is where the networking is being done, the firewalling, the security functions, the flow management, the costs and all that sort of stuff. And then as the packets cross the network, the net, the physical network now becomes dumb, passive, scalable, high performance, stable, but it doesn't actively integrate with what's going. That idea of a smart network, that's that's kind of done, but there is is a smart network. The smart network continues, but it continues from the edge devices in the same way that TCP says, I don't care what the IP is. I'm going to build a safe layer on top. This is what we're seeing with software-defined perimeters or edge networking or whatever you want to call it, um, depending on your bent and your feature set. But Zero Trust says, I need to put the trust right at the edge. I need to put it in the smartphone. I need to put it in the laptop. I need to put it into the industrial device at the edge of the network. And when it connects to the network, I need to log it in. I need to do the encryption there, etc., etc. And this fits into that model, I think.
0: I think you've just made Juniper's marketing department very happy by tying this to zero trust.
1: (laughs) And you didn't even write it in here. It doesn't say zero
0: trust. (laughs) I didn't. That's no, you you brought it up. You brought it up naturally. Yeah, I think that's how zero
1: trust is going to play out. And the word zero trust means literally don't trust the network. And the general assumption is because you're always on a public network, which can't be trusted. And that's why.
0: So, uh, link in the show notes if you want to read the press release. I also wrote a blog about it on packetpushers.net. The link is also in the show notes if you want to check it out. We'll move on. IDC is predicting huge growth for local infrastructure managed by public cloud providers. So, think of the AWS Outposts and Azure Private Edge Zones. The analyst firm says this sector generated revenues of $138 million in 2020, but that number will hit $7.6 billion by 2025, a compound annual growth rate of 151%.
1: Yeah, this, this always sounds great, right? This sounds like it's amazing and... There's going to be so much growth, but it's coming off a tiny, tiny base, right? You can have hundred <laughs> percent. I could, I could have hundred percent growth in my salary, you know, but that doesn't actually mean much because it's actually from this number to that number. It isn't actually all that large because I wasn't getting paid that much to start with. And this is the thing about right. public cloud: is they run around going like, "Oh, the public cloud's forty billion dollars a quarter," and you're like, "Yeah, but enterprise IT is a billion dollars. Uh, sorry, is a trillion dollars a year. It's it's insignificant in the overall scheme of things." But significant in the sense that it's the only thing that's changing. And, the, and it, you want to notice it because it's a new movement in the same way that we used to get excited about the transition from mini computers to desktop PCs to x86. So just keep in mind a sense of balance around here. They're poised for big growth, but off a really tiny base. I mean, they're saying here that uh, AWS's outpost will reach 7.6 billion by 2025. That's not even one quarter of revenue for Cisco. Right, right, right. And that's not just
0: AW Outpost. That's all of the, um, essentially, infrastructure provided to you by a cloud provider, operated by a cloud provider, but you get to use the cloud provider's APIs and, you know, EC2 and whatever inside that that infrastructure.
1: Yeah, it's just... And it's,
0: it happens to be on-prem or in a colo or somewhere at your end. Yeah,
1: age. it's like, okay, fine. <laughs> So that's nice, you know, <laughs> Keep up the good work, you know, like I mean, I take your point
0: that they' it's a it's they're starting from a very small number, so any amount of growth looks fantastic. I think what it says to me is that um, we're seeing now AWS, uh, Microsoft start to compete against, uh, the traditional IT vendors who want to sell this soft, this hardware to customers. And now, instead of buying it from a Dell or an HPE, you're going to buy it from AWS. And maybe they're partnering with those companies, but it's still shifting, again, that, that spend a little bit away from traditional IT vendors and more toward the cloud folks.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. Right? And it's just, it's an alternative. And, you know, AWS Outpost is fundamentally a colo. Right. right? Or a or, a, <laughs> Kinda, yeah. or a HCI, you know, hyperconverged it's infrastructure. An a, it's an HCI, right? yeah, but you're using AWS API. And, fun, yeah, exactly. and somehow when we do it with AWS or, or Azure, it's got mystical, magical properties and it's going to solve all of our problems and I'm supposed to bow down and worship it because it's got uh, integrated with some central off-premise cloud. Well, like, okay, hey, yes, there's something there, but it's not exactly like transformational, life-enhancing Let's go get into a yoga huddle and start omming and aaring, you know, like. Uh. <laughs> Come on, where's your excitement? <laughs> Compound annual growth rate, 151%, growth, right. growth, growth. Enterprise growth. IT is the land of mediocrity, you know, it's, it really isn't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll mark this up as Greg is underwhelmed. Uh,
1: I am whelmed. Under? Whelmed. Uh, All right, uh, we'll take whelmed.
0: Whelmed, yeah, sure, <laughs> okay.
2: Yeah.
0: All right, yeah. you know, on this show, whelmed is good. <laughs> All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Unimus. Uh, They are a network automation and configuration management software. It's designed for ease of use and fast deployment network-wide. You shouldn't have to become a developer just to automate network config. That's why the makers of Unimus designed the platform to remove barriers of entry to automation. There's no programming languages, no abstraction frameworks, and and no templating. With Unimus, you just use the configuration skills you already have. You can use it network-wide. Without spending weeks learning complex frameworks, the focus is on rapid automation. Unimus also handles network config management. That means config backup, change management, config change notifications, auditing. It's a full featured configuration management system in addition to automation. The platform runs on premises, it's multi tenant ready, and supports more than 180 network devices across 100 plus vendors. And you can get a free, no obligation, unlimited license trial or schedule a short technical demo. You can find out how to do that at unimus.net slash packet pushers. That's unimus.net slash pack of Pushers and that is U-N-I-M-U-S. And we thank them for being a sponsor. All right, back to the conversation. Cisco's launching a hybrid work experiment to figure out the best way to navigate having employees mix on campus and remote work. About half of its employees were on campus four to five days a week pre-pandemic, according to an internal survey. But uh, that survey also shared showed... That survey from the company shows that 75% want to spend fewer than three days in an office going forward. Not really a surprise.
1: (laughs) Not exactly a surprise. And obviously, we've talked a lot about here about the return to work. Um, from several different angles. One is, of course, there's the networking angle. Do you build up campus networks? What do those campus networks look like? Should we be investing in them? If people aren't returning to the office, does it need to become, what does that impact does it have? There's also right. the part about your personal requirements. Do you go back to the office and potentially sit next to somebody who's unvaccinated? Um, and how do you feel about that? Some people will feel that's fine. A minority of people uh, are unvaccinated and may turn up. I, I noticed actually this week that the CNN... Um, The CEO of CNN, Jeff Zucker, actually said he has been made aware of three employees who are coming to the office unvaccinated. They had a policy that you're not permitted to come to the office unvaccinated, and those people have been terminated because they breached the company policy. Now, that's something that's new, and that seems reasonable. Keep in mind these companies... Uh, In the US, actually insure the healthcare. So if this person comes in and infects employees with COVID, then the company has to pay for their medical care. So there is high motivations for companies like CNN to keep their employees safe. And I don't think this is a political statement in any way. I think this is just literally a financial thing. They they self-insure and they don't want their employees getting sick. And obviously they don't want to have a COVID outbreak in an office because somebody chose to come to work unvaccinated.
0: Absolutely. So you yeah. know,
1: those are the sorts of issues that, that mix things up. And these are business issues. I'll, I'm not getting into the personal liberty issues around it. Your choice is your choice. But make sure that your choice doesn't impact somebody else is something to consider here. I think the interesting part about Cisco's uh, particular article, it's worth having a quick poke if you're into this return to work thing. Uh, they posted some stats about how Cisco employees feel about returning to work. And before mandatory work from home, it's a little hard. There's like They've done a very good job of grading sort of 14% of people wanted to be 100% from home, 13% wanted to be 80% from home, 10% wanted to be 60 You could sort of say, you know, a minority of people wanted to be working from home and the majority wanted to be spending most of their time in the office. Post-pandemic, the numbers are definitely the other way around. Only, yep. uh, you know, I'll do the numbers here very quickly, something like 80% of people only want to go to the office occasionally, one, maybe two days yes. a week. Which is a real turnaround, yeah. just how quickly that's changed.
0: Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, if, particularly if you're working at uh, Cisco Silicon Valley campuses, the traffic is murder. You could spend hours on the road every day, and it's not having to do that will just improve your life
1: quality so much, that alone. Well, presumably, this is for the whole of Cisco. I wonder how this applies to Cisco's been moving a lot of its workers to other countries. So Indonesia, India, Vietnam, Pakistan, and most of its, the bulk of its employees are no longer in Western countries. In fact, most of the Western countries are sales operations. Uh, sales and perhaps some technical support, although increasingly that technical support is also moving to uh, locations where Cisco can take advantage of low-cost workers. And it's been doing that for two decades. So that's not new. Um, I do wonder if Cisco is going to use this working from home trend to further move roles offshore, if everything becomes remote working. And I do wonder... Did they survey people working in those locations as well? Are the people from Indonesia and India where the infrastructure is less, are they actually not coming to the office or is this just in one place? And the survey is not clear about whether that's happening. So, mm.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, And frankly, Cisco is, like they said in the blog post, this is an experiment. They're not... Uh, putting out uh, a company-wide policy. They're going to let teams and managers decide how often folks in those teams need to show up uh, in the office and see how it happens.
1: Let me me just, it's not, the article's titled The Great Hybrid Experiment. It's not great. (laughs) It's an experiment. Everybody's doing it, right? So it's not particularly great, right? Cisco's not doing it any greater than anybody else. They've been forced into it. And it's not an experiment. It's, happy. Like, it's not a test. It's not like they can say, we're going to do an experiment. If it doesn't work, there's no consequences. This has consequences. It's a project.
0: Like, really, It's really poor writing. Have you noticed? I mean, it's the hyperbole I expect coming out of you know HR and, and marketing.
1: Yeah, but the writing at Cisco has never been great on their blogs. But it's not an experiment. It's not great. They're being forced into it by the pandemic. It's not a great experiment. It's a forced experiment. And they're doing the bare minimum. I think to you know to do this I mean and the end of the day and also I mean and if there's one thing we've learned from Silicon Valley it's a small number of very expensive employees can massively outperform large teams of low cost employees and I do wonder if Cisco's going to keep focusing on maximizing profit as opposed to creating profit. So this ability to move headcount offshore certainly maximizes profit in the short term, but it doesn't create profit. We don't see Cisco's profit margin growing. We don't see its revenue growing. We don't see its customer base growing. Uh, Share price has ridden up on the back of generalized growth in the technology market. So I'm a little bit concerned. And uh, one last comment that I have, Drew, is uh, I, I was a little bit snarky on Twitter, but as I pointed out, remember when you went in the office to work and basically now you're going into the office to socialize. So the office has now become a <laughs> playground so that you can meet your team and build relationships and friendships that so that you can work remotely. It's really odd, isn't it? You know, so the office is fundamentally really- a playground.
0: They actually called this out in the blog and said they're rethinking how this will affect office space and maybe they'll redesign offices so it's not about people coming in and having their individual workspaces. It'll be more for conferences, meetings, and they use this word rituals. And <laughs> I was like, w- rituals? Rituals? This is- that's, are we getting into religion here? What's that I don't know? HR.
1: Sacrifices? That's a little... Mm-hmm. Rituals was a little strong Someone, for any Someone human remains. has gotten a little carried away there. Let's, uh, anyway, <laughs> yes. moving on. Good for, I mean, it is great that Cisco's embracing it and going public with it. And obviously, their WebEx product, uh, I noticed that the person who's promoting this is rem- is part of the WebEx team. Uh, mm-hmm. So the EVP and chief people and purpose officer, policy and purpose, purpose officer, it's human sources. So... Uh, but also very keen to see how their WebEx works out. And I'm hopeful that this sort of stuff will result in much improved WebEx products that are actually usable and workable. WebEx is a bit of a stress at this point. so. That's one of the things I
0: noted in, in my own show notes, that it's an opportunity for Cisco to really eat its own dog food in regard to remote access, collaboration, remote security, et cetera, see what's working and what's not, and maybe improve that product. Uh, they can also test new ideas on how to surveil their workers' productivity when they're out of the office, which is a little scary, but probably coming down the line. Yeah,
1: I, I suspect there'll be more of that because there's enough people out there who want to be able to surveil their workers when they're working remotely and they're going to demand it and vendors are in the game of giving customers what they ask for.
0: Yeah. Uh, and just a final note, uh, in a related story, Amazon says it's not requiring office workers to come back to the office until January of 2022 due to concerns around the Delta variant. Uh, they were previously supposed to come back to the office September 7th. So we are still in flux in terms of uh, distributed work.
1: Yes. Yes. And I think the situation varies according to not only the country that you live in, but the region that you live in. And it would vary. So your situation is different for everybody. That's
0: right. All right. Let's wrap up with uh, financial results from Arista. It's their Q2 2021. It was a strong quarter for Arista. The company had revenues of $707.3 million, up 30% year over year, and net income of $197 million.
1: Yeah. So lots of things about the Arista results, pretty normal. I think the share price fell a little bit because they're predicting slower uh, profit margins. The profit margins will shrink going ahead because of supply chain constraints. Um, but there's yes. a few things I took away. I spent some time reading through the earnings call transcript where yep. the executives from Arista go out and speak to the industry analysts. And that's a public event because the information has to be shared in public under US uh, accounting law. And there was a couple of th- takeaways. And the first one is, you remember for the last two years, we've been indicating that Arista and other technology companies have been returning to the enterprise. And the return to the enterprise that we predicted is real. Uh, I'll quote from Jayshree Ulal, who is the CEO of Arista. In, cloud, in Q2 2021, cloud titans were our largest vertical. The enterprise was a close second, followed by financial and specialty cloud providers tied at third place. The international contribution was strong at 27% with America's at 73% for the quarter. So, the interesting part here is that, yes, the enterprise is definitely a return to the enterprise. So A, we got that right, Drew. Well done. Congratulations to you. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you. And you, sir. <laughs> so factory, uh, the second issue was on supply chain. John McCool, who's the SVP, he says, factories are operating near full capacity, limiting flexibility for changes in demand. And that leapt out at me. I hadn't considered this angle in the supply chain. One of the things that normally happens with these companies is that they place an order for what they think they're going to sell. And if right. the market changes... Or or if the product doesn't get traction, with the, they usually have contractual relationships to be able to increase or decrease their order. In this case, they're not going to be able to change their orders because the factory can't doesn't have the capacity to increase or speed up or slow down or to flex the pipeline, if that makes sense. Yeah. So this is something I hadn't considered in the supply chain difficulties is the idea for uh, companies like Arista who buy products in the market that they have to order and get it right the first time. Where before they may have been able to increase or decrease in order, they had some flexibility. Supply chain is going to be right. more complicated going forward.
0: Yeah, they that was a recurring theme throughout uh, the earnings call transcript, which I have a link to in the show notes. Uh, they said um, it's touching everything. Supply chain constraints on essential components, it's touching everything, including lead times on semiconductors of 40 to 60 weeks.
1: Yes. Uh, although d- different vendors, I, I, call, I did read like five sets of awning, earnings call transcripts this week and different vendors had different things to say. Some of them say that certain products are out to two years. Some of them say 60 weeks. Arista said, we believe it's 60 weeks now, but we think we can bring it back to 40 weeks. So there's mm. there's different stories going on here and I'm not sure how much of the, re- is this political or how much of this is trying to reinsure the the markets that it's under control or whether they've got some right. sort of contractual advantage or supply chain advantage over their competitors. I mean, it's not clear.
0: One of the analysts asked uh, in regard to supply chain constraints, is that going to really uh, result in an increase in prices for end customers? Uh, the Arista folks sort of hemmed and hawed a little bit, uh, eventually coming down to say they're going to try to do their best to absorb costs, but prices may rise on select models next year, depending on how things shake yeah,
1: out. Yeah, Jay Shrew was pretty clear. She said on selective models, we will have to increase, have to, obviously increase prices, where the increases are significant um, to increases prices slightly, but we don't expect the impact on that on our backlog or existing inventory. So what they're saying is any orders or existing inventory is covered and the prices won't go up, but the real impact of changes we will make to our gross margin or our price changes is next year. So if you are planning ahead, if you are budgeting for a purchase, budget for price rises as we predicted- The supply chain will increase. We also believe uh, our general sense is that in the the economy as inflation begins to spiral as COVID recovers and there's so much money washing around in the economy, you think think it will happen. Um, in terms of just to come back, uh, one of the analysts asked a question about how bad do you think the supply chain problem is? And Jay Shree said, well, I'm glad you're asking the oldest person here, close to the oldest in my career of several decades. I've never seen it be this dispersed. Never. This is the worst I've seen it. And there have been some pretty big up and downs and more than the worst I've ever seen it. I think it's also going to be prolonged. I guess we're all hopeful. We will all recover from the COVID pandemic, but everything from copper shortages to wafer starts, to assembly, to manpower, people, logistics, freight, just about every aspect of it is challenged too. And then keep in mind here that Jayshree worked at Cisco for several decades before joining Arista and or as co-founding right. Arista, I believe. And so that just gives you an idea of just how deep the supply chain problems are. We talk mostly about the ASIC shortage because that seems to be the most critical, but as is highlighting here, everything is short.
0: Yeah, and it's going to be difficult for uh, the foreseeable future, so buckle up.
1: Yeah, and big companies will be the winners because they're the ones who have the lawyers and the contractual, and the money and the cash to place orders. I think it's going to be a tough time for smaller companies. One of the interesting things I had a sideline was we got a, a pitch this week from a white box uh, operating system and a white box switch vendor, and they were basically saying that you can beat the, the supply chain shortage by switching to white box. That's an angle I'm going to think about a little bit more. I don't, I, part of me wants to go, yeah, that that that's, you could, yes, you could switch away from a normal vendor and you could get supply of white box because theoretically the white box supply should not be as heavily impacted because it's a substantial manufacturer. You can go to Acton or Evercore or whoever it is that you Edgecore um, and get your product but then again, I also don't know how many enterprise companies would switch away to a white box at this time. Is, is that enough? Is that a cause? Is that a reason? Hard to tell.
0: Yeah, I also don't know that I buy that argument because at the end of the day, they're all getting their materials from the same sources. So if it's constrained for, you know, uh, an OEM, it's going to be constrained for an ODM, too. So not not sure I buy that. But maybe there are options in white box that folks haven't explored, and it could be a backup if uh, you really need some hardware.
1: If it resonates with you, maybe you want to send us some follow-up, packetpushes.net slash fu for follow-up. Um, let us know what you think. Would Would you switch to white box if your supply, you know, if your upgrade project was canned for a year because there was no products to be delivered?
0: Yeah, yeah, I feel like it's like saying there's a water shortage, and so we can't get enough Coca Cola. So buy Pepsi, but Pepsi also uses the <laughs> same water. So I, I, I'm having a trouble with
1: that. Yeah, logic. maybe I some know. more research I have to think there about that too. Yeah. yeah.
0: All right, well, that wraps up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Aruba on a real-world SD-WAN deployment with their customer. That's coming right up. Welcome to the Tech Bytes podcast from the Pack of Pushers. We're talking SD-WAN today, and we're sponsored by Aruba. And Aruba has sent us a customer to talk about a real-world deployment. Our guest is Chandresh Dadia. He is head of information technology at Ascent Health and Wellness. They're a digital healthcare platform for pharmaceutical distribution. We're also joined by Mark Snodgrass. He's founder and managing director from Harari. This is a solutions provider that worked with Ascent Health and Wellness. Chandresh and Mark, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Chandresh, can you give us a little background about Ascent and
3: what you do? Thank you. Happy to be here. So Ascent basically, you know, is part of a pharmaceutical uh, and distribution, you know, company in India. And, you know, we basically ensure that, you know, we cover the entire India when it comes to the distribution, which was very fragmented until now. Now, that's interesting
1: because India is a country which has modern telecom infrastructure in parts. And... (laughs) Uh, less modern infrastructure in parts. And the challenge of connecting all this together must be quite difficult.
3: Absolutely, it is. And, uh, you know, that also is very challenging from a perspective where you have, uh, one is availability of internet in parts, certain parts of India mm-hmm. uh, and the cost uh, associated to those, uh, you know, kind of links. And, uh, you know, third, the stability of such links.
0: So if you're doing distribution and fulfillment for pharmacies and it's all over the country of India, I assume the network is pretty central to what you're doing because you have to take in orders, process orders and, and send out materials. Is that the idea?
3: So until uh, we had sd that was not the case. It was decentralized. Uh, and when we moved uh, to Silver Peak, SD-WAN, you know, all of that architecture was changed and, uh, you know, we did this, started doing this, uh, you know, centrally.
0: Okay. And can you give us a sense of uh, how your network looks? Like what kind are you using? Broadband connections, private links?
3: Yeah. So currently I think, uh, you know, I would say 90% of our links are broadband, uh, which is, you know, very different from what we used, uh, you know, pre SD-WAN era.
1: That's extraordinary, really, because five years ago, you would have had to had dedicated services, and there would have been a mix of MPLS and TDM. And now you're saying broadband works for a pharmaceutical company, and you're happy with the results.
3: Absolutely. You know, if I have to compare it with the internet leased circuits, uh, it is much cheaper, and uh, you know we have much better bandwidth. uh, You know, when it comes to the overall new network architecture. Mm
0: -hmm. And were there particular network or application issues that sent you on a hunt for SD-WAN?
3: Yes, I think, uh, you know, since we are a cloud first company and, you know, most of our, uh, you know, uh, let's say production is uh, run through, uh, you know, public cloud network. It was kind of a, uh, you know, issue when it came to overall network strategy. And, uh, you know, that gave us a lot of challenges when we started, uh, you know, looking at centralization of these processes, trying to fulfill all these orders across India. And that's where we thought that it was important for us to move to a new platform, which would give us more resilience, more availability and, you know, overall uh, uh, you know, good experience overall for the users.
0: And how did you end up connecting with Harari, and and how did you guys find uh, uh, Aruba Edge Connect?
3: We, I, I know Harare since a, time, a few you know engagements that we've worked with them, and uh, you know we actually evaluated close to six SD WAN vendors. First was Silver Peak, uh, you know, and rest of them, and then the last was Silver Peak. So we actually did two POCs with Silver Peak, and then finalized on uh, uh, Harare as the partner and Silver Peak as the solution.
1: If you had to pick one feature out of the POC, let's say that there was just one feature that mattered most to you, which one do you think it would be?
3: I think the one feature that I would pick would be Boost, which basically Mm -hmm. does a lot of compression uh, and, of course, the other uh, overall TCP acceleration part. And this actually does help at least uh, for us a lot.
1: I think in, in your specific geography, that would be quite, special, quite specific to you because you have such limited bandwidth in places. That ability to apply what we used to call WAN acceleration, which is now WAN optimization, where you need it would make sense. Do you use WAN optimization everywhere or just where it's needed?
3: no i think you know van optimization is used almost everywhere mm. uh you know all all kind of traffics that we have across our organizations uh is used mm-hmm. uh, i think that we're using both link aggregation and boost together
2: to maximize the bandwidth available to some of these locations
1: so Link aggregation is this ability to not only use active standby to automatic, but also to load balance across multiple broadband circuits, That's and correct. then to compress across both, which is not something all the SD-WAN vendors can do, right? That's correct. Some SD-WAN vendors, when you accelerate, can only do it over one link if they do that. They can't load balance accelerated traffic. So it is a feature. And that, of course, is the heritage of where Silver Peak comes from. The other part that comes with the acceleration is knowing what's happening. Mark, how did you go about getting the visibility tooling of the, the HP SilverPig?
2: So the Ascent has a lot of custom applications. And so we identified each of those applications and mapped them out. And through the GUI, identified the top talkers and went about optimizing each of those flows.
1: As a reseller, that's got to be awesome. Because you don't know the traffic that's on the customer network and you're coming in to help a customer and you don't want to be spending hundreds of hours profiling the traffic to each location. That must've changed the deployment a lot.
2: Absolutely. We could see within 24 hours who the top talkers were and we knew where to focus from there.
1: Mm.
2: Is that how you decided where to use
0: the uh, WAN optimization, that unity boost feature?
2: Uh, absolutely. That's, you know, we use uh, selective optimization. So we, we optimise the top talkers first and that allowed us to, you know, through the eighty twenty rule, just optimise those applications which were the chattiest and highest bandwidth. And de-optimise others. And de others, correct?
1: Yeah, don't forget that one because if you're going to prioritise something, you have to be able to de-prioritise something else. So other things have to be kicked to the bottom of the bucket. So-
2: A- absolutely. We've seen in bandwidth-challenged situations where – uh some management tools were soaking up all the bandwidth and we can selectively deprioritize those and allow the network to be used for the business traffic.
0: Now I understand uh Chandresh, you mentioned the cloud. It sounds like you've got uh you're using cloud services. So are you also using
3: SD WAN to get traffic into the public cloud? Absolutely, yes. So we've actually, you know, have this architecture in place where you know we have one of the instances. Of Silver Peak on cloud and anything and everything, uh, both ingress and egress traffic are being optimized.
0: um Did you run into any issues with trying to integrate uh, SD WAN with the public cloud? Because it's my understanding that sometimes uh, there can be like routing complexities and so on when you're trying to tie into a public cloud network.
2: We did have some initial challenges, but they were easily overcome. Mm.
1: Now, the challenge here, of course, is that many of the public clouds have these very unique front ends. They're not using standard technologies and your ability to um, connect to them. And so what we have to do is lean into the SD-WAN vendors to do interconnect and to get the traffic into public cloud-hosted services. So it is a real challenge. It's not, not, not straightforward there.
2: Uh, absolutely. as different cloud vendors each have their proprietary ways of connectivity. Then it's easier for the, uh, the organisation to integrate to Silver Peak and have that provide the interchange mm-hmm. between clouds.
1: So this is one of these um, direct MPLS connections in through the back. They've all got it and they all have different proprietary ways of operating. They don't share the routes, but Silver Peak was able to cope with all that is basically the story here. That is correct. And you also set up a full mesh SD-WAN. Why a full mesh? Why didn't you just go for a subset? Like instead of actually just saying, I'll have a hub spoke, like most SD-WAN solutions say you can't have an unlimited mesh because we don't have the resources. But Silverpeak has the ability to do full mesh. Is that something that you wanted? Was that a feature? So what was your take on it, Mark?
2: There are a number of different businesses coming together and each of them have their own nexus and we needed to connect all of the different sites together because there were still residual businesses in each of these different locations. So as the journey to the cloud was underway, we had to connect to all those different sites.
1: So you're saying, I think indirectly, that there's a lot of on-prem as well as off-prem and it's all got to work without, and it's too difficult to sort of say, this can talk to this, to identify what can talk. So you just opened it up to build a full
2: mesh. Yes, there are a number of warehouses, et cetera, distributed across India. Mm-hmm. And they all need to be connected to the various locations.
1: Of course, it's a pharmaceutical business. You have to have pre- product warehouse close to the destination. Chandresh, do you um, find the security of that a tool, or does it? Are you okay with the tooling that you get for the visibility in the orchest- in the Unity orchestrator?
3: So, I think from a security perspective, it does have you know connectivity with some other tools uh, which are cloud based. But for us, it was very important to you know internalize all these applications which were available on van and that for us was very important
0: uh, in terms of the the key applications I' uh, am thinking about the ones you had to apply uh, unity boost to did
3: you notice a performance difference did end users notice absolutely I think there were many different you know outcomes to this one was in terms of speed, Uh, You know, some of the applications were as good as, you know, land-like experience, right? In some cases, uh, you know, we had overall user experience becoming very, you know, flawless, right? Some of the internal applications which which were web-based, users started feeling the difference uh, when they started using this. For our ERP, you know, we used uh, to, you know, uh, give access via RDP. And that is what we... You know, stopped once we have had uh, uh, Silver Peak SD-WAN with you know WAN optimization enabled.
1: Oh, you replaced the the SD-WANs work so well that you've replaced RDP or thin client yeah. with just web browser because the bandwidth is sufficient.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We we do do not use RDP anymore across the organization.
1: That's amazing. That that is a real transformation because that whole RDP infrastructure is hard to run, hard to operate, lots of servers.
2: Lots and of complexity in, and, and insecure right
1: <laughs> yes i was trying to lean a little away from that but you get the idea you know yes rdp is can be seen as insecure in some ways and in others it's not right it has everything's a trade-off so there is that but for me it's about running RDP infrastructure requires servers and storage engines and capacity that needs to run it. and you've already got it all in the computers at the edge and the web app makes a lot more sense I think. So I guess this drives into how distributed work came upon us with the COVID pandemic and how your employees and your customers access you. Is the Silver Peak SD-WAN been important to you as part of that?
3: Yes, I think SD-WAN played a key role, you know, during the pandemic, where we were able to run our business without any hiccups, no, you know, issues whatsoever, having so much of load, uh, you know, bearing capacity, and of course, uh, you know, flawless uh, execution for all the applications.
0: Well, thanks, Chandresh and Mark, for joining us. And thanks to Aruba for being a sponsor. If you like this episode, you can find this in many more fine, free, technical podcasts, along with our community blog at packapushers.net. And always remember that too much networking would never be enough.